Amen. Well, um, our passage this morning picks up with Jesus, the disciples, and presumably the crowd that were with them in the same place where we left them last week, and that is with Zacchaeus. While they were listening to these things, Luke tells us, Jesus went on to tell them a parable. And he provides Jesus' rationale for telling this parable. He says, because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So there are the two reasons. He was near Jerusalem, and they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So they, whoever they are, are right about one thing, but not the other. Jerusalem is close, less than a day's journey away now, but things will not play out in Jerusalem like the crowd supposed. They supposed, Luke tells us, the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. How wrong they were. They were expecting the kingdom and what they would get is Jesus crucified. But they are not so different than we are when it comes to this. We too suppose, we suppose that Jesus is supposed to be this or that, that he is supposed to do this or that, that he's supposed to make our lives into this or that. But quite often, our suppositions, whatever we want, this or that, are shipwrecked on who Jesus actually is. Do you remember now some time ago in the Gospel of Luke, when John the Baptist was in prison, and he sent a delegation to Jesus, and disillusionedly he asks, are you the expected one, or do we look for another? So there's John in prison, doubting. Jesus was not who John expected him to be. Jesus was not who John supposed him to be. He didn't measure up to his expectations, and so John began to doubt. And in response, Jesus says to the delegation to take back to John, Blessed is is he who does not take offense at me. In other words, Jesus tells John, Blessed is the one who has their expectations about me, about Jesus, what he's come to do, about what he's come to give to his people, who has those expectations dashed, their hopes disappointed, and yet keeps on. Now, John the Baptist's question, are you the expected one, is bound to find expression on our lips too. In fact, that we say those words is inevitable because we too are like the crowds. Sometimes we're following Jesus more for our expectations than we're actually following Him. And thus, as we progress deeper into the truth, as we begin to know Jesus more for who He is rather than for who we imagine Him to be, there is going to be that difficult process of disillusionment where we shed our preconceived expectations. Well, I thought it was going to be this. And I, and I signed up for this reason, and like the crowds, were following Jesus toward Golgotha. But that process is always for our better. Jesus 
confronts. And he's more willing to confront than we are to have our expectations confronted. Those stubborn illusions about him. Those things we believe that are just not even really who he is, but what we've conjured up in our own minds and hearts. He confronts those. Those illusions about ourselves, about our desires. And what he does is instead lead us into the truth about him, about ourselves, about what this Christian life is all about. And in the truth... We are set free. So the disciples are about to have their expectations cracked open, but they're going to be given something better. The Spirit taught them, and He is teaching us to follow Jesus for His own sake and not for what we want Him to be or what we imagine Him to be. So there are the disciples in the crowd. Following Jesus, supposing the kingdom of God to be right around the corner. And good for them, they are in the right place at the right time. With the Messiah, as he nears toward Jerusalem to claim his throne in glory. Right? They supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Jesus is going to knock heads and settle scores. And they are going to get their piece of the pie, so to speak. They're going to have a little bit of the glory for themselves. And now their motives are clear, judging by how Jesus frames the parable, as we'll see in a minute. But their grand designs, as we've noted, are going to come crashing down on reality. The man that they will lead into the city, the passage we'll read next week, praising and acclaiming him as king, will be captured by the Roman authorities and put to death on a cross within a few short days. The crowds, the disciples, they all missed what everyone misses. And that is that suffering comes before glory. In other words, that the cross comes before the crown. And apparently that lesson, that suffering comes before glory, the cross comes before the crown, is hard to learn because even after the resurrection, the disciples still haven't grasped it. This is Luke 24, verses 25 and 26. O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary, listen, for the Christ to suffer, that comes first, these things, and enter into his glory? So what the people of Israel had imagined as one event, the coming of the kingdom of God, is in fact two events. The kingdom comes, yes, but first in suffering and then in glory. First upon a cross and then upon the clouds of heaven. Jesus came in humility. He will return in glory. Thus, and this is the unforeseen thing, between Jesus' two comings, the inauguration and the consummation of the kingdom, there there opens a wide and indeterminate period that no one foresaw. They expected it to happen all at once, and it happens in this twofold stage. So they supposed the kingdom was going to appear immediately. However, in reality, it unfolds over vast stretches of time. So the point is, the glory that everyone expected is going to have to wait. In the meantime... 
It's the cross before the crown. And that leads us right into the parable that Jesus tells. It reads, beginning in verse 12 of our passage, So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him, so that he might know what business they had done. Now, the association of Jesus with the nobleman in the parable is rather straightforward. The nobleman intends to go away to a distant country and there receive a kingdom, and upon receiving it, then return home. And so Jesus, rather than establishing his kingdom immediately, as was supposed, also has to go away and then come back. And the passage says specifically that he ventures to a distant country. And I think the distant country that Jesus goes to is a reference to his death on the cross. Now, we've heard that phrase, distant country, before. And what happened in that distant country? Well, you remember the story of the, or rather the parable of the prodigal son. He leaves his home and goes where? To a distant country. And what does he do there? He wastes his life on prostitutes and gambling. And indeed, while he was away, his father supposed him to be dead, saying, My son was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and is found. The distant country, in other words, is the place of sin and death. And there Jesus must go to the distant country, into the very heart of darkness, to claim his kingdom. But in the meantime... The interval between his departure and return, the nobleman gives his slaves a duty to perform. He distributes to each of them a mina. Now that's somewhere around three to four months' wages. And he says to them, do business with this until I return. Now more on that in a moment. Eventually, the nobleman does return. And the scripture says, he ordered that the slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him that he might know what business they had done. In other words, it's accounting time. He's back. He wants to know what they've been up to. So the slaves, they've been given responsibility, and now the time for assessment has come. How have they done? Now, as the parable maps onto reality, it's clear what's being referred to. You may have picked up on it yourselves. It's the last judgment, when each one of us is called before Christ that he might know what business we have done. Or as the apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, if you read um, the business strategists, the productivity gurus, 
um, they say that it's best to begin any project, anything that you do, with the end in mind. In other words, before you start the physical creation, uh, again, be it, let's say, a ministry or a building project, before the physical creation, there is a mental creation, right? There's an envisioning in your mind of the desired end. That's where we want to get. Because without that mental creation, the physical creation um, is not going to turn out so well. Just like a building follows a blueprint, so the physical creation follows the mental creation. Hence, the principle begin with the end in mind, right? Know where you want to go before you start. So the desired end determines and structures the steps we take to get there. And every decision that comes up along the way is then assessed in terms of that endpoint. Is this going to help us get to where we want to go, or is it actually going to hinder us? And keeping that endpoint in mind, what it does is it keeps the project on task, and it keeps us from becoming aimless and unproductive, right? Everything is ordered toward an end. And so that's really sound advice. And now, our death and the judgment that follows it serve a similar function in our lives. The end, that, as the apostle says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, sets the tone and provides the structure for our lives in the here and now. The future... That event, right, that we're all going to appear before Christ, it reverberates through time, backward through time, so to speak, and it teaches us how to live in the present moment. So to reiterate the principle, this time in a more pressing context, begin with the end in mind. And that's what the scripture teaches us. In 1 Peter 1, verse 17 The Apostle Peter tells the churches, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So that constant reminder that our lives will be weighed in the balance then and there produces in us a healthy fear in the here and now. And that word... Fear is the proper one. It is reverence. It is respect, but tinged with a fear that the one to whom we must give an account is God. And that conjures up within within us a good kind of fear, a sobriety that cuts through the nonsense and the idiocy that we are all too willing to get ourselves caught up in. In short, it keeps us from becoming careless with our lives, wasting them away doing this or that. You see, when you judge everything according to the end, it gives weight and meaning to all of our actions in the here and now. They all matter. In fact, Jesus says, even every idle word that's spoken men will have to give an account for on the day of judgment. There's a meaning to our lives. 
And, you know, if you read the spiritual masters of uh, church history, they all teach the same thing. All of them say that it's a good thing to meditate on your death, to meditate on judgment. And that seems morbid and dour to our death-averse secular sensibilities, right? We want to run from that. We don't want to face death. We don't want to talk about those things. It's kind of just move it out of the picture. But it's good wisdom. It's good wisdom to think about those things. And really, by thinking about one's death and thinking about the judgment to come, all we're doing is beginning with the end in mind. We're putting the mental creation together prior to the physical one. We're thinking about that end and how to live rightly in light of it. So it was Thomas Akempis, one of those spiritual masters I spoke about, who said, when your last hour strikes, you will begin to think very differently of your past life and grieve deeply that you have been so careless and remiss. Happy and wise is he who endeavors to be during his life as he wishes to be found at his death. Again, so by meditating on the end, what happens is carelessness, carelessness and neglect vanish from our lives, like a mist that is burned away by the rising sun. Suddenly, there's a weight a purposiveness, a clarity to every step that we take. And so the one who meditates on the end, rather than aimlessly wandering through life, charts a straight line through the nonsense. Right? There's a goal. There's an end in mind. And so I'm not wandering here and there. In a word, what all this does is teach us wisdom. Listen to what the scripture says. This is Moses. Psalm 90, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? He says, so teach us to number our days. Again, to understand that there is an end, he says, that we may present you a heart of wisdom. Knowing that end, reckoning with it, is what teaches us to live wisely in this life. And the season that we've just entered upon in the church calendar is Lent. And though we don't have an Ash Wednesday service and put ash on our foreheads, we should heed the familiar injunction, from dust you are, and to dust you shall return. It's a time of year when we remind ourselves that there is an end, and to consider that end and then adjust ourselves accordingly. Happy And wise is the man who endeavors to be during his life as he wishes to be found at his death. So, the nobleman to whom we must give an account is still away. And we still have time, each one of us, to take the mina that's been entrusted to us and do business with it. It's not too late, it's not even too early. Now is the right time to remove it from the handkerchief. And get to work to use what the Lord has given to us. So that moment still awaits us. But for the slaves in our parable, the time of accounting has come. Uh, The story continues. Verse 16. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, 
and you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are an exacting man, you take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. Now we'll come to slave number three in a minute. First, let's take a look at slaves one and two. One took the mina entrusted to him and turned a 1,000% profit. Not too bad. And the other, a 500% profit. Also nothing to scoff at. And for both, there is a reward. And that reward is proportional to their earnings. And so him going away, giving them the mina, was something of a test, an assessment, a tryout. The slaves were entrusted with very little, the master says, and they are rewarded with something not so little. One is put in charge of ten cities in his master's new kingdom. He was faithful with a little bit, now he's given a whole lot. And the other was faithful with a little bit and also given a whole lot. Five cities. And once again, how the parable translates into our lives is quite simple. There is a reward, a great one, in the kingdom of God for doing business in the here and now. The scripture says that God is not so unjust as to forget your work and love which you have showed toward his name. The profit we turn on the mina entrusted to us in this life is given back to us in the age to come. Pressed down, as Jesus says, shaken together and running over. So the slaves, they seem to engage in business for the nobleman. In fact, it seems for them it's a no-win situation. If they make money, the nobleman takes it. And if they lose money, well, they're going to have to answer for it. Hence, slave number three, you are an exacting man. I was afraid of you. Yet, he's got it all wrong. All the prophets actually go to them. Their very little faithfulness is rewarded with great and awesome responsibility in the nobleman's kingdom. And it's a theme for us that's fleshed out in more clarity in 1 Corinthians 3. I'd like to read that passage beginning in verse 11. It says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he is built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So, as the slaves had to give an account, so too our work will undergo a quality assessment, or quality assurance test, rather. Our lives, according to the metaphor, will be tested by fire. And that fire will reveal their quality. That which is done in righteousness and truth will be rewarded. It will stand the test. Like precious metals, the flames will only make those works shine brighter. 
But on the other hand, however, that which is done in unrighteousness will be consumed. Like weeds, they'll burn up at the first spark. So if we consider what's being said, on the one hand, it's quite an unsettling thought that much of our lives might be simply burned up in the flames, counting for nothing. Yet on the other hand, on the other hand, it's quite an inspiring thought. Because that which remains, says the apostle, will receive a reward. Our works will have counted for something. Our life will have counted for something. And so it will come back to us with interest from the Lord. Now it's hard to say what that reward is going to actually be, right? We see, as the apostle Paul says, through a glass dimly. But the parable does give us a couple of clues. The first is what C.S. Lewis calls the divine accolade. So the slave presents his profits to the nobleman. Ten more minas, five more minas. And he responds, well done. Well done, good slave. Now hinted at in those words is what the scripture makes clear elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 4, the Lord will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motive, motives of men's hearts. And then... The scripture says, each man's praise will come to him from God. So there will be an unveiling. And then, whatever stands, Paul says, each man's praise will come to him from God. Literally, the praise that we turn upon the Lord, he will turn back upon us. Well done. Well done. C.S. Lewis says, to please God... To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father in his son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. And indeed, we cannot even begin to imagine what it means to say that each one's praise will come to him from God. One thing we do know, whatever it means, is that it's only possible in Christ. We do not earn such a claim, but receive it in grace. And nevertheless, it's not a feigned praise, mere play acting on the part of God, but genuine and true recognition and glory from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, there's also more. The second clue comes in the words, you are to be in authority over ten cities. Recognition uh, uh, from God appeals to us rather directly. But this element, authority, and even judging angels, as the scripture says, says elsewhere, is a little bit harder to appreciate. We can see how hearing that divine acclaim, well done, it appeals to us. The justification of our existence, yet this is a little bit different. And of course, having just some small measure of authority in this life, or if you've had it anywhere in your life, typically your idea of heaven is not to have any of it in the next life. But there it is. That's the promise of the scripture. He who overcomes and he who uh, keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with the rod of iron as the vessel of the potter are broken to pieces, so also I have received authority from my Father. So we trust that God knows best. 
whatever it means to be in authority in the kingdom, it will meet our deepest desires, even if those desires are not yet kindled within us. So there is a reward, and we are encouraged now to do business with Armina, to, to do business with that which has been entrusted to us. But maybe there is some discouragement, uh, perhaps some hesitation, because it is quite a bit. Where do I begin? Uh, what do I do? I'm not a mis- minister. I'm not a missionary. I'm not anything like that. I work a normal job. I have a normal life. What, is, what am I supposed to do with what's been entrusted to me? Well, I want you to hear what Jesus says in another part of Scripture. He says, Whoever gives just a cup of cold water to drink, a cup of cold water, he shall by no means lose his reward. That doesn't have to be something grand and impressive. God reckons to our accounts, even the smallest deeds, a cup of cold water done in his name. In truth, A cup of cold water given to someone in love is far better than a sermon preached in pride. There's no need to aspire to something extraordinary, to something uh, that might seem grand in the eyes of men. Rather, simply begin with what is right in front of you. It's not the size or the effectiveness of the deed that matters, it's the quality. What does Paul say? The motives of men's hearts are going to be revealed. God cares the quality of the work, how it is done, in what spirit is it done. And the question then is, is it done in love? And how simple that is, right? There's not one of us who uh, cannot give a cup of cold water to someone in need, so to speak, whatever that might be. We all can start there. So who in your circle needs spiritual, emotional, or physical refreshment? a cup of cold water. You be the one to meet that need, and in meeting it, there's great reward, even a cup of cold water. And so that brings us lastly to slave number three. And let's hear what the nobleman has to say to his, um, well, his excuse. He says, another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, By your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Do you not know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. In contrast... The slaves one and two, who are enterprising and quite willing to take risks with that which is entrusted to them, slave number three opts to play it safe. Instead of doing business, as the nobleman said, he tucked away his mina and a napkin and a handkerchief and stored it away in a safe place. Now, what was his reason for doing this, right? Why, why did he not go out and do business like he was told? Well, it was fear. I was afraid of you, he said, because you are an exacting man. So slave number three, note this attitude. He judges his master to be cruel and 
ruthless, someone to be feared, not to be trusted, and certainly not to be loved. Now, obviously, slaves, number one and two, view their master in a different manner. While slave number three is paralyzed by fear, terrified by the exacting man, the hard master that he has, they are out wheeling and dealing. They're using what's been given to them and prospering. Now, I didn't understand the meaning of this, the difference between the two groups of slaves, until I came across this quote. It says, investment always entails risk. Right, we know that. There are no guarantees. The world is infinitely complex and ever-changing and the future unknown. The willingness of the two servants to risk the wealth entrusted to them demonstrates their faith and confidence in the goodwill of their master. It's precisely the absence of, their confident, of this confidence leading to his failure to even attempt to generate greater wealth for which the third servant is condemned. Thus, ultimately, the difference between slaves one and two and slave three is a matter of faith. One doesn't go out and risk it because he's afraid. He thinks his master's going to be hard on him. But the others, they adopt aggressive business strategies because they are not afraid of their master. Things may go sour, right? It, it might not work out, but they're confident that he won't punish them for it. Slave three, however, lacks such confidence, and so he ventures nothing, and so receives nothing, and merely, quite cowardly, in fact, seeks to avoid losing his mina and just tucks it away in a safe place. He acts not from faith, but from prudence, and moreover, a prudence grounded in servile fear and terror don't want to risk anything. I'm just going to put it away. So what do we learn? How do the attitudes and the dispositions of these three slaves translate into our lives? I think the first thing we ought to say is that when God gives us a gift, he expects us to do business with it, to keep it moving and not to bury it in some ridiculous napkin. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. It's interesting the details between the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke and their telling of this parable. In the Gospel of Matthew, rather than a mina, it's a talent, and a talent is a lot more money. And moreover, each slave is given a different amount of talents, one five, one, I think, three, and then the other one, or one, two, and five, two, and one, whatever it is. They each have a different amount. So whatever a talent is, it's different than a mina, because each one of us is given a mina. Everyone has one. Some of us have five talents, others have one, but everybody has one mina. So what is a mina? I think we'd have to say it's the grace of salvation. Not any spiritual gifts, but just spiritual blessing that comes to us in Christ. We all have that. We all have received that grace as we've been forgiven, so we ought to forgive. We ought to take that mina, that grace that's been given to us, and spread it abroad. Because what God wants is for us to participate in that economy of grace. You've been shown grace, give grace. You've been shown mercy, give mercy. You've been shown love, give love. Don't bury it in the napkin. 
And I really think the difference between slaves one and two and slave three can be summed up in Jesus' words to Simon the Pharisee. You remember in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, the Pharisee Simon was cold and calculating. And as he was having a meal with Jesus, the prostitute burst in and she collapsed at Jesus' feet. She was weeping and wiping Jesus' feet with her tears. And Simon, well, he couldn't handle it. He got angry. And he said, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would not be allowing this to happen. Simon judged her. And so he judged himself. Listen how Jesus responds to him. Chapter 7, verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she wet her feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Uh, You gave me no kiss, but she since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. And then he says this, But he who is forgiven little, loves little. That sounds like the third slave to me. Not doing much, not bearing it away in his napkin. So let's not, like Simon and slave number three, take the grace given to us, and hide it away. But instead, do business with it. And as we've been forgiven much, let us also love much. And now we close with this. We also learn, and this seems to cut against the grain of all that we've seen so far, that God is not too concerned with the profit that we turn. Why is slave number three ultimately condemned? Not because... He didn't make enough money, but because he didn't trust his master. The nobleman was prepared even to accept the minimal interest that he would receive on his mina at the bank. He was willing to accept almost nothing. The only bookkeeping that was being done was the bookkeeping of faith. It was the bookkeeping of faith. But slave number three, he had no faith. And he buried his mina in a napkin. Fear disabled him. And so we must remember, we've talked so much now about having to stand before Christ on that day. We must remember that the judge is also the one who was judged in our place. Yes, we will give an account. But not to the exacting man that slave number three thought. We're going to give an account to the one who bears in his hands and his feet the wounds of the cross, who suffered for our salvation. Judgment, though it's judgment, ought not to paralyze us. The Lord actually isn't so concerned how much minas you ranked in. Did you perform like this one performed? What he cares about is that you trusted him and that obeyed him. And at least, if ever, in your own stumbling way, tried to do business. That's what matters. He wants to see faith at work. And so, as we prepare our hearts now to receive Holy Communion, let's remember that the judge whom we must all stand before is not against us, but for us. 
He has already in his own body borne the penalty and consequence for our wickedness. The judge judged in our place. We are justified. And because we're justified, we want to let that knowledge encourage us all the more to take a searching inventory of our lives. Where we've become like slave number three, bearing Armina away in the napkin, let us repent and recommit ourselves by grace to do business for the Lord. I must be about my father's business. And so as the music plays, I just want to invite you for a moment to take time to prepare your heart before receiving Holy Communion. Um, Pray, seek the Lord, do what needs to be done, and in a moment I will lead us in receiving the elements. Go ahead and take time to do that now.